0: And if you're at home worshiping as well, wherever you are, wherever your home is, wherever today finds you, we're so, so glad that you're here. If you'll check in in the comments section of whatever platform you're on, uh, YouTube, Facebook, or the story.church, just let us know that you're here. Let us know where you're tuning in from. It just means the world to us during a, a challenging time like this. So my name is Eric. I'm the lead pastor here at The Story. It's a special welcome, special honor to welcome all of you, especially if it's your first time joining us for worship. Listen, if you're looking for a community where you can belong without having all the answers, without having it all figured out, without knowing exactly what you believe or having all the right answers, like we started the story for people like you. And so I hope you find a place to fit in here, a a group to belong to beyond just worshiping on Sunday mornings. I hope you find a a, a real place, a connection point where you can ask those questions and explore and search for truth. And and I believe God will meet you in that exploration. So that's why we started this church five and a half or more years ago. And and, uh, that's why we're here today. Um, listen, we're starting a brand new series of sermons today, and I always love starting new series. I get excited when we start new message series. It's just I love doing new things, and and I was uh, amped up and ready to get going with this series last night when uh, uh, just after 10 o'clock at night, we're winding down, lying in the bed, starting to just sort of uh, rest for this morning when we hear these Noises we've never heard before coming from the pipes in our house. I know, that's what I said. Oh, no. And I'm not going to describe in detail the next two hours of our lives. I will just tell you, I almost became an atheist again, and um, it was just awful. Just absolutely awful. But at the same time, it fit. It was absolutely perfect. This is 2020. That's what happens in 2020. I mean, we were sitting around a table a few months ago thinking, what is Christmas going to look like in 2020? Like, at a church, what should we plan for? What should I preach about? What should we even conceive of when we look ahead to December 25th of 2020? Will we even get there? Like, that's the kind of year that it's been, and so much is in question for you this holiday season. Should we do Thanksgiving this week with our families, or should we sit this one out? Should we eat our turkey alone? Should we subject ourselves to one another's droplets around the day? Like, that's the kind of stuff every family's wrestling with, and it brings such a sense of anxiety, despair, frustration. Like, we just don't have any control over this crisis, and it's driving us nuts. And 2020 has just been that way you know, all the way back to March when this all began. And and we all know about the big stuff of 2020. We all know about COVID and the the, the havoc that COVID COVID has wreaked on us. And and we know about the job losses, the life losses. We know about the, the businesses that are shuttering, restaurants that are closing. All of these stories bring such devastation in a real life way. We know about so much of the other kinds of stresses we've dealt with this year. We, we know about the, pol- uh, the political stress. We know about the racial tensions, and police brutality situations. We know about everything we've dealt with this year. But there, there's all kinds of other stuff that's happened this year that in any other year would be absolute headline worthy. But In a year like 2020, most of us just turned a blind eye to these crazy things that were happening on the periphery of COVID and the election and everything else. Things like, uh, I don't know, that time that a monkey stole a vial of coronavirus out of this lab in India. Nobody asked any questions. We all just acted like it's normal for a monkey to steal things. Like, was he in the lab before and he escaped? Did he get into the lab, steal it, and break out again? Like... What happened to the coronavirus that he stole? Is it out in the wild? What should we expect? We didn't have the bandwidth to deal with it. So we just kind of let it go. Monkeys steal things from labs now. Okay, we see you 2020. Or what about that time in June when a squirrel in Colorado was diagnosed with a bubonic plague of all things? Not to be outdone by COVID-19. This squirrel is like, I got you and I love you. (laughs) The black death in 2020, and everybody was like, oh, squirrels have the bubonic leg, that's cool, let's move on. Like, we didn't even pay attention. All the time, former vice presidential candidate, Sarah Palin sang Baby Got Back on national TV. No one said a word. And it's like, we didn't have the resources, the faculties to deal with this kind of craziness, but that happened in real life. She really did that. You can see it on YouTube, if you dare. Or, or maybe most shockingly of all was, the, was the, the government's drop of these videos, these UFO videos um, earlier in the year. The Pentagon just drops all these videos. They say, we've been holding on to these. They've been classified for years. Oh, and by the way, we have no idea what they are. And they look like they're from another planet. We didn't make them. They're not ours. Um, here, enjoy these videos, America. And no, nobody commented. Nobody got scared. Like, that should have freaked us out. But I think we were just too busy, you know, keeping up with uh, COVID-19. And we were too busy stocking up on toilet paper, too busy catching up on Tiger King, all these other things we had going on. We just couldn't deal with it. And so we just had to just pretend like it's not there. And and that's the kind of year that we've had, y'all. So what kind of Christmas should we expect? A year that has taken so many lives from us, including these celebrity lives that we all grieved going all the way back to, I believe it was February when Kobe died. Kobe Bryant died. Chadwick Boseman died this year. Lou Brock, Whitey Ford, you know, uh, uh, we, we lost Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Herman Kane. We lost, you know, Betty White, Alex Trebek, so many other, Regis Philbin, so many other celebrities were lost in 2020. And it really, okay. You don't have to worry about Betty White. She's still alive, okay? So Betty White didn't die. However, however, it would not have surprised you, would it, if she died and you missed it? Because that's the kind of year that we've had. Betty White's fine, okay? Don't worry. People in the 845 service were like, I'm leaving this church. Okay, so chill. Betty White's good, all right? So, uh, but you would not have been shocked because that's the kind of year we're having so what does Christmas look like in a year like that? What should we be prepared for? Especially if you're already a believer. How should we get ready to celebrate Christmas at the end of a year like this one? Well, there's already hints that, that you know, the anxiety around Christmas is going to be even higher than the anxiety around Thanksgiving has been. And anybody that you know, travels at Christmas or goes and spends time with people outside of your immediate household, like you're going to face more scrutiny at Christmas than you're going to face this week at Thanksgiving and judgment from your more cautious friends and things like that. And, and we've seen signs of this for months now and weeks at least. And, and I, I saw this uh, clip on CNN, which is a clip of uh, Dr. Fauci talking to Jake Tapper about what to expect at Christmas and look at how Jake Tapper frames what we should expect happening we've got to get the vaccine it's got to be deployed and we can't abandon fundamental public health measures you can approach a degree of normality while still doing some fundamental public health things that synergize with the vaccine to get us back to normal so not until the second or third quarter of 2021 though christmas is probably not going to be possible yeah i'm yeah, okay, so Christmas is probably not going to be possible? Like, that doesn't even sit with me. Like, I, I can't even fathom that. Christmas, I know what he means. He's not saying, like, Jesus was never really born. He's saying, like, we won't be able to celebrate it freely or joyfully this year. So that, that kind of thing is exactly what we're talking about for the next five or six weeks here at The story. This series will culminate with Christmas. We've got some work to do to get there. We're gonna be actually digging back in time. We're gonna start at the end of Jesus's life and work our way back to the beginning. But we're gonna get there. And the whole point of this is to figure out how we can celebrate Christmas in a year like this. We're gonna do that by exploring some history here. We're gonna look back at other times in history when believers, when people of God have been challenged and pushed into corners or pushed into the margins pushed into places where they weren't sure if they were safe or able or allowed to worship and celebrate God freely. And we're going to see what God did in those moments and how people responded. So that's what this series, uh, 2020 Christmas, The Weary World Rejoices, is all about. Biblically, our, our text basis for this series is going to be the Psalms. So we're going to be learning about the Psalms this uh, season, and, and this is interesting to me because I've never taught a series on the Psalms, which is crazy. It doesn't make sense because the Psalms take up so much of uh, the, the Bible's you know, bandwidth, and not just spatially. I mean, it takes up a lot of space in the Bible to be one of 66 books. It takes up far more than one sixty sixth of the Bible. Put your first finger at the beginning of of the first psalm in your Bible and another finger at the end of Psalm 150 and you'll see what a chunk the the psalms take up in the middle of your Bible. But also theologically, the psalms are so important in forming a foundation for so many of our fundamental beliefs as Christians. And, and, you know, I I think also emotionally that the Psalms really speak to a broad swath of human emotions and the whole spectrum of our feelings that we're experiencing in good times and bad. The Psalms accomplish that. And so you can't really, I think, understand or appreciate the Bible fully without a, a healthy appreciation for the Psalms. And so that's what we're going to be exploring. So when we talk about the Psalms, what are we talking about? that big book in the middle of your Bible, what are we talking about? What are the Psalms? Okay, so the Psalms are a collection of poems, mostly set to music, poetry, um, songs, and prayers that were written as early as 1000 BC in the time of King David. David wrote almost half of the 150 Psalms And they were written for hundreds of years after that until finally they were compiled. So they were not written as one book. They were written as a bunch of disparate poems and songs and prayers and then pieced together into an anthology in the 6th century B.C. So what was happening in the 6th century B.C.? Understanding the context will help you understand the Psalms. So in 597 B.C., the Jewish holy city of Jerusalem was under siege. It was leveled by the mighty armies of Babylon, Babylon's present day Iraq. So these Middle Eastern conflicts have been going on for millennia. So 600 years before Jesus, Jerusalem was attacked and flattened. The people were humiliated in their defeat. The people of God took this as a sign that God was mad at them or maybe God wasn't even there at all. Because not only did the Babylonians destroy the city, the Babylonians set the temple on fire and the temple was made of limestone. And I don't know if you know about limestone at high temperatures, it explodes. And so the place where God lived had literally exploded before their very eyes in 597. That's where God lived. That's where they experienced him. That's where they went to read and hear the law of Moses spoken. That's where the Torah was kept. The first five books of Moses in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Many people say they're the the most important five books for the Jewish scriptures. And now the place they were kept has gone up in flames. And then for 60 years after that, from 597 to around 536, Many of the Jerusalemites, the people who lived in Jerusalem, and many of them were leaders of the Israel, uh, Israel, uh, Israelites, like they were exiled. They were, they were shipped off. They were gone. They were sent to live in Babylon as exiles, as strangers in a foreign land. And so the people were scattered. There was no email. They couldn't keep touch. They didn't know who was alive and who wasn't. The Babylonians had raped and pillaged and humiliated their way through Jerusalem, and the people were distraught and defeated. It was in those 60 years that the Psalms were compiled. And if you ever look through the Psalms, I encourage you to do this at home this week during the series, you'll see they're separated into five books. That's intentional. The people that created the Psalms, that compiled the Psalms, did that intentionally because even though the place where God lived and the place where the Torah, the five books of Moses were kept, even though that place was gone, exploded before their eyes, God was still with them. That's what the Psalms meant. That's why they separated these prayers into five books because they wanted these prayers to be reminders of the five books of Moses and the real presence of God, even in a time of deep suffering and anguish. That's what the Psalms are. When you're reading the Psalms, you're reading a prayer book for a broken people. And many of the psalms, I think the ones we pay attention to most, are joyful and pleasant. Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water, my soul longs for you. you know, Psalm 18, I thank you, Lord, my rock and my refuge. Psalm 9 says, uh, says Lord, I, I, I will tell the nations of your wonderful deeds. But then there's another side to the psalms. The psalms don't just capture the sunny side of life. The psalms capture the full range of human emotion. So there's, for example, Psalm 6. That, I'm sorry, it's, I think it's Psalm 6. That talks about the all night long, I, I drench my bed with tears. It's another psalm that says... Lord, I'm in hell. And you put me here. You have have thrown me to the deepest depths. And throughout the Psalms, the psalmists write things like How long, O Lord? How much longer? Why do you always hide when I need you most? That's how the people prayed. in their darkest times, they prayed real and honest prayers. How long? Where are you? What are you doing? Have you forgotten? So so that's what the Psalms represent. All right, and when we look to Jesus and his relationship to the Old Testament, we often think first of his relationship to the law and the prophets. For some reason, Those are the quotes that come to mind for churchgoers, right? So you know Jesus saw himself to be the fulfillment of Jewish law. You you know that Jesus saw himself to be the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy. Do you know that Jesus also respected the Psalms every bit as much as the law and the prophets? He said this himself. Luke chapter 24. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law in the prophets, and in the psalms, So Jesus saw himself in the psalms as well. And that's the fun part of this series for me. I get to talk about the times Jesus quoted the psalms and what he meant when he did. Jesus was always quoting the Old Testament. He quoted no other Old Testament book nearly as much as the psalms even as he died in agony on the cross, even as he experienced the worst possible pain and isolation and humiliation on the cross. He quoted the Psalms multiple times from memory. And so we're going to talk about some of these times that Jesus quoted the Psalms, like uh, as he died, as he breathed his final breath in Luke chapter 21. Three, he hanged on the cross. It was about noon. Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon for the sun stopped shining. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Now, most churchgoers know Jesus said that. It's always interesting how few of us realize he was quoting. Something that was written a thousand years before. Again, from memory, he was quoting King David, who said the same words to God in the 31st Psalm, where he said, Keep me from the trap set before me. You're my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. Into your hands I commit my spirit. So, one thing. I never get tired of with Jesus. One of the reasons he never grows old in the human imagination, one reason people still love him as much today as ever is because he spoke in layers of meaning. And whenever he quoted the Psalms in particular, he said more than one thing at a time, And sometimes it takes years for believers to figure this out. You just see it one way on the surface your whole life. And then one day somebody peels back a layer for you and you go, oh my gosh, Jesus has been saying this other thing at the same time. I didn't even see it before. It's fascinating and beautiful. That's why the Bible continues to be the bestseller the world over, because the layers of meaning constantly surprise us. And so when we look at what Jesus said, when he died on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I see him saying at least three things. I could come back five years from now and have another layer for you. I don't know. That's how, that's how the spirit works. But I see three things happening in this one line that he quotes from King David's Psalm. On the one hand, I think the first thing he's doing is he is expressing real pain. His real pain in that moment as he died. Second, I think he is throwing shade or bringing shame down on his enemies in that moment. Third, I think he's expressing real trust in his father. So I want to unpack these with the rest of my time here. Real pain, real shame, real trust with this one line from an ancient psalm, okay? But first, he's expressing real pain. There is no doubt Jesus was experiencing the worst possible human agony. We always say God knows everything, and I understand that as a theological concept. That's true, like God knows everything. He's all-knowing. However, I think we have to leave room for certain things, experiential things. I'm not sure that before that particular moment, God knew what it was like to be in a body, a human body, and bleed out, being nailed to a post. I'm not sure that God knew exactly what that felt like to die in agony, naked, in in humiliation and shame, to die a criminal's death when you're not a criminal. I'm not sure God knew exactly what that was like until that moment. And in the worst possible moment, just before he breathed his last, Jesus, the embodiment of innocence and purity and love, I think he pulled back from this memory bank, from his childhood, this song he was taught to sing as a child. Remember when I told you all these psalms were songs and they grew up singing them? They were all set to a tune. One of the great, I just gut-wrenching, honestly, when you think about Jesus on the cross, when he's quoting the psalms, he's probably singing. The tune, can can you hear him? Singing as he gasps for breath and tries to articulate the words. Can you hear him trying to get that out? you know how in trauma, a memory will come to mind. People say, my life flashed before my eyes. You know what I'm talking about? I think that was true for Jesus here. And as he's expressing this real pain, physical pain that he's going through, I think this memory comes to him from his childhood of this song that says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. I think that's how songs work on us. I think I've seen this before. I think that's, uh, that's why, for example, um, uh, when Howard Storm shared his story on the Maybe God podcast um, maybe two years ago, we did an episode on near-death experiences, and Howard Storm, though raised in the church, died an atheist, and when he flatlined in the hospital, this was all documented, he actually died. He talked about his spirit being led down a long corridor by some sinister beings. And the further they went, the more aggressive these sinister beings became toward him. And they began to abuse him in all kinds of unspeakable, horrific, traumatic ways. He can't even talk about this experience, although decades have passed. He can't even talk about it now without sobbing like a baby because it was so horrific. And he talked about being led toward hell by these demonic spirits. But before they got all the way inside the gates of hell, he collapsed onto the floor and he said he could sort of see himself there and he looked like a corpse, like roadkill, he said. He was that beaten up and bruised and bloodied and and just in his agony, he said, one memory came to mind from his childhood, growing up in church, from Sunday school, singing a song in Sunday school, a simple song. Jesus loves me, this I know. He began to sing from that. Placed in the floor of that corridor near the gates of hell, he said, he began to sing, For the Bible tells me so. He was barely able to get the words out, but he said it must have been loud enough for Jesus to hear because Jesus came and rescued him there and gave him life again. And ever since that time, Howard's been sharing that story so people will know there's something else waiting on the other side. There's something that music does to our memory that nothing else can. And I think Jesus is pulling a memory in his pain to express his pain to his father. Second, I think Jesus is calling out his enemies. And this, I don't know what else to call it. This is just some hardcore gangster stuff here that Jesus does. Okay, so this two weeks, we're going to talk about this. He does it twice. He's calling out his enemies in real time as he dies. And what I mean by this, you have to understand, first of all, all the Jewish people, especially Jewish leaders, knew all the Psalms because they'd grown up singing them their whole lives. It was their hymn book. They knew them. Okay, so Jesus' enemies, his human enemies, were Jewish religious leaders. They're the ones who got him on the cross in the first place. They were there at the cross. The Bible tells us they were there mocking him as he died. Save yourself if you're really the Messiah, they said. And so when Jesus quoted Psalm 31, he's talking to them too. And what I mean is, whenever you know a song, especially one you've known for a long time, and you hear one line from that song on the radio or somebody sings it or hums it, you can't help picking it up and singing the next line. You can't not do it. That's why when I say, "Uh, sweet Caroline, you go. I love it. That's it. That's it. All right. That's what I'm talking about. You know the next line. You can't not sing it. Or, or when I go, I'm walking on sunshine. Yeah. Okay. So, or, or when I go, she's a brick. <laughs> All right. You get it. You get it, right? Okay. So when Jesus somehow mutters the tune in the words of a familiar psalm that his enemies in his presence knew. They couldn't not hear the next lines of that song. You know what they were? Let's look at them. From Psalm 31, the next line is, I hate those who cling to worthless idols. As for me, I will trust in the Lord. I'll be glad. I'll rejoice in your love. For you saw my affliction. You knew the anguish of my soul. You've not given me into the hands of the enemy, but you've set my feet in a spacious place. Jesus is sending a message to his enemies in this moment. You think you've won. You have no idea. You have no idea. My Lord has not given me over to to your hands. He has set my feet in a spacious place. So Jesus said these words to God. He's also saying these words to the people around him or to God about the people around him. Some, Some real stuff. I love it. Now, third and most importantly, Jesus, in this moment, the third layer of his meaning here is he is expressing real trust, real trust in his Father. He is saying, Yes. I'm here, I'm suffering. Yes, this is hard. It's anguish, it's agony, it's traumatic. Yes, people are working against me. Yes, I have enemies. Yes, they're mocking me. Yes, they're saying awful things about me. Yes, they're saying I'm someone I'm not. Yes, and it's awful and terrible. But you have not given me over to my enemies. You have not given them the victory. You have set my feet in a spacious place. In other words, in this moment, Jesus is saying, Lord, Father, Dad, it hurts, Dad. Dad, it hurts. And he's saying, Dad, you hear them, right? You hear what they're saying about me, right? Dad, it hurts. And they're saying stuff about me. But, Dad, I trust you. I trust you even now, no matter what the circumstances on the cross, Dad, I trust you. I trust you with myself. I give you my spirit. I know there's a spacious place waiting for me. I'm coming home, Dad. That is the most profound layer of meaning that Jesus is communicating with this simple line Into your hands I commit my spirit. That was his prayer. Of course. 2020 continues. If you're not hearing this online, there's a car alarm going off now. So It's interesting, y'all, to think about how we pray compared to the psalmists. Like in a year like this, for example, like when it gets hard, when it's hit the fan, when we were, are really struggling, like many of us have never known struggle before, like this, right? So many of us have lived really comfortable lives, and suddenly we have no control over anything, and we don't know what to do with it. And we really are in agony over this year. We really are sad about what's happening to our country. We really are frustrated with our political adversaries, for example. We really are upset about the shuttered businesses that will maybe never open again. It really does get us the numbers of infections and deaths continuing to rise, it gets us deep. And we take our frustration and our angst and our pain and our fear and we wear it on our faces. Everybody can see it. I can see it on your face. You can probably see it on mine. We're tired. We're uncertain about the future. It's scary. And we tell each other, we tell our friends, we text our friends, sad face emoji, I'm sad. We tell our our spouse about how we're feeling we talk to our therapist about it. We tell Twitter all about it. And then it's time to pray. And what do we do? Not all of us. Most of us, what do we do? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord, my soul. <laughs> God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for this food. Or, or even, y'all, even our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and will be done on earth as listen to me, there's nothing wrong with any of those prayers. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with the Lord's Prayer. But listen, the Lord's Prayer teaches you what to pray. The Psalms teach us how to pray. What does it say to God who loves you? If during one of the darkest times of your life, when he sees your heart broken in a thousand pieces, when he knows the anguish and agony you're under, and he knows your stress, he knows your fear, and then you pray to him some rote, ritualized, rehearsed stuff that doesn't feel like anything. What do you think that might communicate to him? What if you love someone, you had a friend, you knew they're having the worst year of their life, you knew they're just going through hell on earth, and then you ask them about it. Come tell me, come over to my house, tell me what you're going through. I want to be there for you. Tell me, how are you? And they go, I'm fine. It's all good. I'm great, how are you doing? And no matter how much you press, they just stay on the surface. It's like that, you've seen the meme with the kid with the funny look on his face and he's like, everything's fine here. And like the house is burning in the background. Like that's the disingenuous nature of our prayers sometimes. I wonder if God might feel as though we don't trust him with our burdens. I wonder if God might feel like we think he's not able to, to carry what we're carrying or we think he couldn't understand or maybe worst of all, we think he would be upset if he knew what a mess we are right now. Listen, God can take it. God can handle it. God can heal what's broken. But I'm not sure He can fix something you choose not to talk to him about. I'm not sure he can heal something you choose not to fess up to. I'm not sure he can help you learn to love someone you hate unless you confess your hate to him first but we hold back. And all the while, he waits like a father for his children to open up. He's just waiting for us to say, like Jesus on the cross, okay, into your hands I commit my spirit. I trust you, Dad. It hurts, Dad. You see what they're doing down here, right? Dad, I trust you with myself, with my fear, my pain. Trust that you're there. And I put my hope in you. Listen, that's how the psalmist pray. Every year at Christmas, it is a reminder that God's not afraid to get dirty with us. That's actually what he did at Christmas. He came and he got his hands dirty with us. And he died for us to show us he's willing to do anything for us. Every year at Christmas, that's the reminder. And and maybe at the end of a year like this one, we need that reminder more than ever. We need to be reminded again this year that God's not afraid to get dirty. God's not afraid of your mess, that even when you think you're sitting at the gates of hell, even when you're tempted to think it's God who put you there, you can talk to him about it. So I pray that you will pray. More like the psalmist this Christmas. I pray that we would trust God enough to pray with hearts, with honesty, taking even our deepest pain and shame and agony to him because when we meet him there when we're honest, he can heal what's broken. Can fix. He can fix what's missing. He can restore what's been lost. And you trust him. Y'all pray with me. Father, we confess right now that we uh, we just don't get it sometimes, and sometimes we're we just don't know what to pray. We don't always know what to say to you when life hits the fan and we do feel completely lost and thrown. God, we confess it's easier for us to be honest with other people than it is with you, even though you've been there all along, never letting us go. You've been faithful and true, Lord. So help us to trust you with our fear Help us to trust you with our anxiety. Help us to trust you with our pain. Help us to trust you with our hate. And help us to trust you with our hope. Meet us in our brokenness and fix it, Lord, as only you can do. Meet us with our burdens and carry them, Lord, as only you can do. We want to pray like the psalmists prayed, Lord, because you never let us go. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.